In the uh, July 2014 edition of Science Magazine, they published the research of uh, researchers from the University of Virginia and from Harvard. They had uh, gathered up a couple of hundred uh, college students and put them in a rather austere lab and asked them to sit for 15 minutes with their own thoughts. No books, no cell phones, nothing stimulating. Just sit here with your own thoughts for 15 minutes. Well, far and away, the majority of them said that they were incapable of doing it. Absolutely, utterly incapable. That it was boring. So they put them in their own homes where they would be comfortable. But still, 15 minutes sitting there with your own thoughts. And they got identical responses. So they took them back to the lab and they offered them a button that would give them a small electrical shock. And they asked them to sit there with their own thoughts for 15 minutes, and lo and behold, two-thirds of the men and a quarter of the women gave themselves periodic shocks. <laughs> and one male subject shocked himself 190 times in the 15 minutes. I wondered, when I read this story, whether they studied if he, it was the shock or he was just enjoying pushing the button. I became interested in the season for nonviolence uh, about 20 years ago, just after the Nobel laureates announced it. I, um, I was serving in a parish at that time, and I wondered different questions. You know, some years I would talk in the season of nonviolence about war, and some years I would talk about our interpersonal behaviors, and some years I would just talk about peace, peace of mind, like I am today. And um, I came across an interesting bit of research. It seems that um, when television was introduced in the United States, some of us were here, we're not going to say. Um, when television was introduced in the United States, about 20 years later, there came a large uptick in violence. A large uptick in violence. Now, in the United States, this could be gun violence or any number of things. So people began to wonder, and this is probably the very beginning of that writing that goes on to this day, to which no one has come up with a conclusion about whether or not the content in our television viewing causes us to be violent. You can prove it either way. But they noted that many years after that, when television arrived in Australia, that 20 years after that date, Australia had a spike in violence. So the children that had been raised with the television were adults now, out in the streets, out and about. But in Australia, it was fights, kicking, that sort of thing, but still, a notable spike in violence which led many of us who are interested in this work 
to the conclusion that the content is not so important as the device itself. What was it about watching that device, we wondered. Now, you may say to yourself, look at this old lady. She just doesn't like video games. <laughs> but I should tell you that I am a level 80 gnome warrior, <laughs> arm specced, and then I am married to a 100 dwarf warrior, prospect. And we tear us up some Azeroth. <laughs> and I will also play just about anything else. So I'm grappling with the same issue. Now the thing about content, there have been many wonderful stories about and research done by the American uh, Pediatrics Association, that sort of thing, about whether or not violence was, uh, violence in video games was causing violence among young people. Now, one of the things that is indisputable is that violence has gone precipitously down during the period of video game sales, and they have gone, the sales have gone wildly up. So if I look at a graph, I see violence, ding, 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 and I see video games, choo. Now, you would think that there would be a correlation, wouldn't you? More video games, more violence. But when they looked only at boys and girls who, in fact, played video games with violence in it, they discovered that they were anywhere from 20 to 300% more likely than their non-gaming peers to be in physical fights, to have hit or beat someone else, to have... Uh, done property damage, theft, have poor grades in school, uh, to skip school, to be suspended. The only thing that they were less likely to have done, boys and girls together, was to have been threatened by someone. Uh, and the boys were much less likely to have been bullied. And the girls were about equal, the gamers and non-gamers, in the number of them that had been arrested. So we could take that bit of information and we could say that it's, that it's content. Look, of the kids who watch the games, 65% have been in a physical fight recently. But if we look at some more data, about content, we can think about the Facebook experiment. So, Facebook manipulated all of its readers. They selected 690,000 readers uh, one week in June of 2012 and ran a secret experiment on them. This experiment was disclosed in the Proceedings of the National Association of Science Experiments. Um, they wanted to see if they could cause emotional contagion could they get you bummed out enough that you would bum out all your friends? That's what they wanted to know. Could they get an adult bummed out enough that they would bum out their friends? So they screened, and half of these, you know, 
1,600 people, 16,000 people. They, they said, okay, you, um, them, we're going to... We're going to keep them from any of their posts that are, have words of pleasantness. You know, if it says, I'm so happy, or, or this is great, or any of those things. They, for that week, they didn't get those posts. They took the other half, and they took out things that were unpleasant. So, please pray for me. I'm so sad. This is so disappointing. That sort of thing. And they wondered whether they could get uh, us bummed out. Now, why would they want to get us bummed out or happy? Well, it's purely advertising. Advertising people well know, and this is another part of my brain studies, that if they can get you in some kind of heightened state, that you will be more susceptible to buy something. And this is why every segment of television, before you go to the commercial, either ends with something dramatic, terribly tragic, or very uplifting and a big, big laugh. Right? Because they know you like the book you are. So, truly content does have some effect on us, but I want to talk about what effect. In this month's issue of uh, Psychology Today, in the February issue, the, uh, they asked themselves, what are the purpose of negative emotions? Because I know what you're thinking when I ask you to be peaceful in your heart. You are thinking what many of the happiness gurus write in their books. You can be happy all the time. And you read that cover in the bookstore and you say, oh, not me. I don't know who that is. I don't know what simple-minded person you think I am, but I cannot be happy all the time because I have all these things. So asking ourselves, what is the purpose of negative emotions, I'd like to focus on anger because we think that's what's holding us back from peace, right? If I watch, if I spend too much time on this machine, excuse me, I'm going to see if I have a text. I do, wait. Y'all go on. I'll catch up with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, greetings from Columbus, Ohio. That's nice. Okay. You don't know them. It's okay. So... So we think that what is holding us back, we worry so much about this violence. I've been worried about it for 20 years. I've known about the television experiment and that there is something about just physically being drawn into that alone space, that focused space that has an effect on our minds and on our actions. And often we think of peace and anger. I could either be at peace or I can be angry. So when we think of this from a what is the value of being angry perspective, one of the things that immediately uh, psychologists tell us is that the value of being, we feel angry when we feel undervalued, under-respected, when someone uh, takes us to be uh, less able, less smart, less valuable, 
this may ring with you uh, about our inherent worth and value principles. So when people disvalue me, so I'm trying to do something, but you come and snatch it up and take it away from me, the response is anger because I am being undervalued. When at work, I don't get the respect that I think I deserve or I, I'm uh, belittled. I get angry, and when I am angry, my motivation is to action, and that action is built around regaining my power in the situation, regaining my power. So what happens if I'm, if I'm pissed off and I want to be a gentle person, I want to keep peace in my heart? Well, this is what all of that is about. I can be angry. I can be righteously angry. We have a hymn in our hymnal, which I don't believe I ever understood until I began to study this. We are a gentle, angry people. We are a gentle, angry people. I've thought of that as a platitude for years. But no, it it speaks to exactly this. I am going to be angry. There are matters of disrespect and of disvaluing of myself and other persons, and I am going to be angry, and that is okay, because that anger can lead me to action to regain my own sense of worth relative to everyone else and to regain some equality between persons so that some persons won't be feeding ourselves to illness while other people are starving. We are a gentle, angry people because the path of nonviolence, so promoted by Dr. King and the Mahatma Gandhi, is nonviolence. And I can tell you I don't much like nonviolence. It gives me a headache. <laughs> and yet, it is the only thing I've ever found effective. <laughs> because the minute that I start disrespecting somebody else, then they get angry, right? And now we're going to town, and there's going to be nothing but escalation. Oh, no, you, Don, let me tell you what you are. Well, yeah, well, let me tell you what you did. Well, wait a minute, let me go get one of your friends to tell them what you did. Let me just shoot something at you over the border. What? How dare you shoot something at me? Who do you think you are, and who do you think I am? I'm going to shoot right back at you. Let me, I'll shoot two so you'll know I'm better. and so on, and so on, and so on. That's at the heart of our angry hearts. But if we can find that inner peace that says, I am myself, I am here now, I largely choose my response to these things. Once I can recognize this is anger. I don't need to tamp down the anger. I need to figure out what is the appropriate response the hymn says, we are a gentle, angry people, and we are singing, singing for our lives.
when protesters broke into worship service in our congregation in First Orla uh, New Orleans, protesting our stands on reproductive rights and screamed at the minister in the pulpit, she began them in singing. And now we have a protocol that we send to congregations. In case of emergency, sing. I offer it to you as a strategy as well. Now, Susan Blackmore, who is sometimes called the queen of consciousness, you may know her because she spent decades of her life studying paranormal activity and then said, whoops, <laughs> I was wrong, that was stupid. Um, so then she wanted to go on and think about consciousness. So what is it? I think I had that experience. What is it in my consciousness that makes me think so? She says, you know, we began with the evolutionary process of genes. Uh, we went on to the evolutionary process of memes, which is an idea becoming contagious and building itself without our help. Just. And then she says, we are now in the time of dreams, which is the evolutionary process by which digital information copies itself and incorporates variation and selection, so the principles of, of uh, evolution, variation and selection without us. So the, the large computer networks that we build, the worldwide web that we have created has reached a point truly in which it barely needs us because it can create variety infinitely, and it can decide what is good and bad. So what does it need us for? Well, she notes, Susan Blackmore, that uh, you remember when Lynn Margolis, the scientist, uh, developed a theory of what she called endosymbiosis, and she said, how did we get this little power pack, this little mitochondria in our cells? Where did this come from? This is, this is the thing that's running the whole business. You got a gene in there, and that's true, but it wouldn't be going on if it didn't have this mitochondria. And Susan Margolis was the, I mean, uh, uh, Linda Margolis was the one who said, I believe that free-floating bacteria were subsumed into uh, cells without nucleus, and became the power sources for those cells. So what she's saying is every cell in you is being powered by what was once a free-floating bacteria. I don't know what her friends thought about that. But a lot of people, wait a minute, I'm getting a call. I don't know that. Wait, there we go. It happens at 11 every Sunday. Every Sunday during worship, I get this kind of thing. Um, so, Lynn Margo, so what's the, what does Susan Blackmore drive from that theory of endosymbiosis? I know you're hoping that it, she's hoping that computers will come into ourselves and be some, uh, uh, you wish. She says, and you know I think it's important because I wrote it down, we are being absorbed into this thing, she means, the worldwide computer system as its power produces as its power producers becoming the mitochondria for the great machine we are giving up oh they're calling you now <laughs> we are giving up our independence and control over ourselves our children our relationship and the planet without realizing what we've done. Let me go back. 
We are being absorbed into the thing as its power producers. Becoming the mitochondria for the great machine, we are giving up our independence and control over ourselves, our children, our relationships, and the planet without realizing what we've done. And she said we are programmed to this because we are constantly being overstimulated and like little rats, we run back for it. We run back for the blue light that keeps us awake all night and we tell ourselves that using the blue light before bedtime will make us awake, it'll make us go to sleep. Oh, I always read it. I always play video games until I'm tired. Bull. She says that we become more anxious and depressed and so more susceptible to the stimulation of the machine. And I hope you sleep better over that. <laughs> I'll leave you a word of encouragement, though. We are easily distracted. People who claim to be eyewitnesses are highly inaccurate and often are subjective to changing their story entirely when a second logical story is told to them and thinking that what they are reporting is not what someone else told them, but what they themselves saw. But, and we also do not experience things through this, like if I'm taking pictures of something, making a recording of something, I will remember almost nothing of what occurred unless, the science tells us, I have deeply focused on something. So if I've done a really close shot, I'm, I will remember that. But otherwise, I am here, and I don't really give a damn where you are. We are better together. People walking down the street alone do not notice money hanging for trees. They do not notice violence being perpetrated just a little distance from them. But two people walking together and focused in that way and the mind engaged in what it is meant to be engaged in, loving hearts, growing minds, fierce determination and fellowship, that mind notices the money hanging in the tree that it passes and notices the violence going on. And so I offer you the suggestion that we unplug. Now some of you are in recovery. And this is just one more thing. So we might have to start getting together and telling ourselves the stories of how we spent 12 hours on the computer trying to level up when the expansion came. But we will get through this somehow. We are inherently worthy. You are. And there is such need and such chance for joy together. So go off in peace into the week. And I'm going to try to get up from the computer every half hour. I don't know what you're going to try to do, but good luck.